John, kind of at this point in his letter last week, we looked at chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. And basically what John does in 12 through 14 is he has this kind of rally cry. He's building up who we are. You got to know who you are in Christ. If your understanding of who you are uh, in Jesus kind of stems from, is found in your positive response to him, then you'll find it is this crazy roller coaster. If your relationship with Jesus is primarily founded in kind of how close you feel moment by moment to God, and, and, so, and this largely from I'm doing everything I know I'm supposed to do, I'm not doing all those things I know I'm supposed to not be doing, then it's going to be this crazy roller coaster ride. So John gets in there and he has thrown some hard truths at them leading up to um, 12 through 14 of chapter 2. Some very difficult truths that have really asked them to take uh, an inventory of sorts. Kind of this question of where am I before God? And how does, how does God feel about me? And how do I feel about God? And, 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 and what does that mean? And, and am I really living my life in such a way to glorify him in all that I do? And some of the people, they came out of that and they said, you know what? I'm really struggling. I'm just not so sure uh, how God feels about me. I'm not so sure where I am. And so in 12 through 14, he just lays all that aside. He says effectively, uh, kick to the side your, your kind of back and forth understanding of where you are before God. And he reminds them of where God sees them. He says, I'm reminding you that your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm reminding you that you have known him who's from the beginning. I'm writing you and letting you know that you have overcome the evil one, that you are strong, that you are found in his word. And I'm writing you and letting you know that you know God the Father. So he's building in all this stuff about their identity that if they will take to heart, if they will read, if they'll internalize, if they will know, it will radically transform and lead them into a decidedly different direction for those things John's getting ready to lay down on them, okay? Do you understand it this way? We have to know where we are before God before we can be obedient to God. Lest we begin to recognize that our obedience to God is forming who we are in God. So what he's communicating to them is that it is not their obedience that is ultimately firmly secured who they are and where they are in God, but it is this gracious work of our God that has firmly and steadfastly secured their place and helped them to abide. And in that place of steadfastness, then, they're able to abide. Now, it's very confusing. Hopefully this clears it up. Let me read 15 through 17, then we'll walk through it. John writes and says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So what John gives us in 15 through 17 is a really simple command. Do not love the world or the things of the world. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If you get this, you can go home, okay? Like if you get, there you go, we got one taker in the back. And so if you get this, I mean, this is really, this is, this is his command. This is his idea. Don't love the world. Don't love the things of the world. And he gives us two reasons why. The first reason, as he comes to it, is because all these things that you are tempted to love are an indication that God's love is not in you. And the second one is, all this stuff is passing. All this stuff is fleeting. All this stuff is falling away. Now let's walk through and see how John applies this to us. He says, don't love the world or the things of the world. Now, this is perplexing for us in some sense. 
How do we exist as kind of people here in Greenville, Texas? How do we exist here and, and not be loving towards those things around us? And so we read passages like this and we say, well, I, I guess what all I have to do, all I'm supposed to do is just go live over on this island of, of monasticism. I just need to go tell my wife, look, I'm so sorry, I, I read this, and, and you need to go be a nun, I need to go be a monk, and, and we'll write, and presumably somebody will take care of the ki- kids, hopefully, hopefully. They're all boys, I guess they have to come with me. And so just kind of raise them in this monastic life. And so is this how we're not to be found in loving the world? Is it just kind of strike ourselves off and live in isolation? You know, Jesus, writing about his disciples, had some words to say about this in John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, Jesus is in this high priestly prayer, this address to God the Father. And starting at verse 14, listen to what he said. Speaking of the disciples, by extension, speaking of us, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You see what he's saying there? If you're a Christian... If you are aligned with Jesus, if you have believed in his death, burial, and resurrection, and have united yourself to faith with him, you are hated by the world. This is what he says. He says you're hated by the world. Hmm. It's tough. He goes on, he says, he says, they're hated by the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, verse 15, but that you keep them from the evil ones. So we begin to understand that there's something going on. The totality of of Scripture and the testimony that we read in there is we recognize that the earth is the domain of Satan. The earth is the domain of Satan. He's variously referred to as the ruler of the world, the evil one, and any number of things. And here, he's referred to as the evil one. But look what he asks. I don't ask that you take them out of the world. So it's not this removal from, but it's this protection in. I don't ask that you remove them from the world, but that you protect them and keep them from the evil one verse 16 they are not of the world just as i am not of the world in essence when you are saved when jesus comes into your heart when he does this work of transformation he has transferred you from darkness into light and this is kind of what john has been getting at in first john and in as much as you are living for jesus in as much as this is kind of where you are we recognize that you are no longer of the world you're not of the world. Jesus isn't of the world. Now look at what he asked them. Look at what he asked of God. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Jesus' prayer to the Father is, God, make them holy. Make them holy. And this is interesting. His, his prayer, it would seem in some sense, if he wants these guys to be safe, if he wants them to be secure, then he would say, don't let them stick out, right? Don't let them be the guy or the girl that dresses in all burnt orange in College Station, Texas, right? But effectively, he's communicating the opposite. He says, let them stick out. Let them be something different. Let something be decidedly unique about them. And this uniqueness isn't found in the vocabulary. Their uniqueness isn't found in their habits. Their uniqueness is found in their union with God and that, their sanctification. And their sanctification stemming from the Bible, which John refers to as truth through Jesus' words. Look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. How was Jesus sent? He was sent as a redeemer. He was sent as one to invest himself. And so too, each and every time we extend the gospel to those we encounter, we are joining Jesus in this terrific work of redemption. Look at verse 19. 
And for their sake, I consecrate myself that I may also, that they may be also sanctified in truth. So we get into this and he says, don't love the world or the things in the world. And we recognize that if you are a Christian, if you are someone who has surrendered your life to Jesus, this is a simple truth for you. You are not of the world. And so therein, when you find yourself loving the things of the world, you are loving things that are in direct contradiction with the nature of who scripture says you are. John begins to unpack this. What we see in here in this idea of world is worldliness. So it's not just having love for your neighbor. We recognize we're absolutely called to love our neighbor, regardless of where they stand before Jesus. Amen? We're called to engage them. We're called to be sanctified in some sense for their betterment. But look at this harsh word he has. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now recognize this. What this isn't is a discussion of God's love resting upon you. This is not what he's writing here. What he writes, in essence, is your love for the Father is kind of moving in direct tandem with your love for the world. So if you find yourself loving all the things in the world, you love worldliness, then perhaps for you, what this is, is an indication that God's love, the love that God has given you for himself, is not in you. So God is merciful towards you. He still beckons you to come. He's still desirous for you to come. But you have no ability to reciprocate this love. And our loving worldliness is perhaps an indication that this is true. But most of us, as we sit here, we look at this and we say, well, this is just kind of passe. This is pro forma. I really don't see myself in this. I'd, if I was, I was planning to skip next Sunday, but really I should have skipped this Sunday. That would have been an easier passage. Because we look at this and we say, you know, maybe you've read ahead and you look at this and say, Matt, I don't find myself caught up in loving the world. Well, let's just, let's walk through it and see how it goes, okay? Look what he says. For all that is in the world, everything describing in John's definition of what the world is in verse 15 is the following. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. He says, for all that is in the world, and so he gives us three various ways that all these things are described as being in the world. He says they are the desires of the flesh. Simply put, you and I want stuff kind of at the core of who we are, right? We want stuff at the core of who we are. We are an impulsive people. We are a people who see what we want. We see a beautiful woman, we go after her. We see a handsome man, we go after him. We see a job we want, we go after it. And so these are kind of these desires of the flesh. Not all negative, not all positive. John's not talking about the flesh in the same way Paul does. Every time John refers to the word flesh, he's not meaning something negative. In essence, he said, but all these desires of the flesh, and then he describes them in more detail. He says, all these desires of the flesh, the first thing he says, it is the lust or it is the desire of the eyes. We recognize that almost everything we want stems from our having observed it with our eyes, right? So my kids are great at this. We're driving down the road and we pass the Mitsubishi dealership on 69 every time we come to and from town. And every week, Bryce tells me, Dad, that truck there, it's still for sale. You need to get that truck. I don't need a truck. I'm going to drive my car until the wheels fall off. But he has made it in his mind. This is the desire that he recognizes. And two, it should be a desire in my heart. Now, this came from recognizing my brother has a truck. My uncle has a truck, my grandfather had a truck, my other brother had a other brother had, you know what I'm saying? And so all these people have these things, and he says a truck is infinitely cooler than what you drive, so you need this, you need this. He sees it, he sets his heart upon it. 
We see things all the time. Now the difference is, is the way this gives over, this person has given themselves over to that desire. Jesus speaking in Matthew 5 and verse 28 said that anyone that looks at a woman in such a way as to lust after her has committed adultery in his heart. So we recognize that there is the ability to set our affections on someone or something to the degree that we are sinning against God. Do you understand that? So Matthew 5, 28, he says, if you look at this thing and you set your, the, the, all of your gaze and all of your intensity upon it and you, you begin to make plans for kind of how this is going to work out, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So you're sinning against God. He says it's the desires of flesh, it's the desires of the eyes. And look at the last thing he says. All that's in the world is the pride of life. The pride of life. Most things that we view in culture communicate that this is having healthy self-esteem. Healthy self-esteem. Talk about how great you are. You see a pretty girl walk by, you flex your muscles, you have your chest bumping or whatever it is. I, like, I don't know. I've not, I've not done that. I've been married for a while. But, and so, but you understand, like, everything in this that this discussion is talking about, we are presenting ourselves in such a way to exalt who we are. We're presenting ourselves in such a way to exalt who we are. And so we find ways and avenues and conversations this person does to bring up really great things we've done, right? So Justin and Jesse, if you talk to them, what they think this looks like for me is driving every conversation back around to, oh, by the way, I grew up in Europe, right? This this is what you guys pick on me for. And so it's like, hey, that's some pretty good popcorn. I was like, well, did you know that, you know, popcorn really came from nowhere, but, but, but I lived in Europe. And so this is kind of how they give me a hard time about this. But really, we begin to recognize there's this tendency to pull our hearts in this direction. So we've done something really great, and, and we want to share that with somebody. And so we, we passed a test, and so our, our, my wife and I, we, we've been reunited, or, or our kids have done something great, or we've gotten a promotion at work. And we want to share that thing so everybody else can kind of join in our happiness. And they join in our happiness, and then that begins to wane, that begins to fall away, and we begin to say, man, I really enjoy the attention, I really enjoy people looking at me. I've got to find something else to bring to these slobs so they have another reason to find themselves caught up in adulation for me, Right? And we begin to find ourselves being this person who's caught up in the pride of life. We talk about our house, we talk about our car, we want to talk about our job, we want to talk about how great these things are. I'd love to tell you that this is, this is one of those exemptions that pastors do not find themselves in. But within five minutes of meeting most pastors, the question that they tend to ask after kind of where are you, where'd you go to school is, well, how many people you have at your church? How many people you have? And I'm just able to say, well, we don't really count. And they're like, you don't count? How are we supposed to engage in conversation? I'm like, well, I don't know. Let me just count uh, the way Whitfield did. 5,000. <laughs> he said, 5,000? How do you fit them in that small building? I said, well, they sit on laps, of course. Do you not do this? And so but we find ourselves being pulled in this, and you especially see it in the world, and there's this temptation to find ourselves walking in this same thing. I remember when I was graduating high school, and uh, everybody's applying for scholarships and all these things. It was the first time I'd really been kind of, uh, I, I'd really encountered having to write something really great about yourself, right? And so you're like, I'm super smart. I, I like English real good. You know, and you're like, hey, could you, this isn't, this isn't indicating uh, that this is a true statement. And so you begin to find this thing, and then everything else in life, when you're doing your Vita, when you're doing your CV, you got your resume, all these things of find how great I am. Everything in our culture calls us to walk in line with how great we are. But maybe you read these things and you say, Matt, this isn't me. I don't, I don't struggle with any, any of these things. I have put to death the desires of the flesh. I have 
put to death the desires of the eyes. And I have put to death this pride of life. I don't really struggle with these things. Which is good news because we find out next, it's not from the Father, but from the world. Now look what he says here. He's getting at things that kind of distract us and keep us from passionately pursuing God. And when we follow these things, we're following the world, we're not following God. You'd raise your hand and say, I'm not guilty of any of these things. Let's talk about some things we are guilty of, okay? When we begin to think about these things in terms of Christians and kind of the circles that we tend to find ourselves falling in, I can think of, well, I can think of a bunch, but we're just going to look at three or four right now. We tend to take things, and C.S. Lewis was great in the, in the book, The Screwtape Letters, this, this correspondence between these two demons. He says, you need to recognize that enjoyment is something that comes from God. And, and all we can really do is take enjoyment, take pleasure, and pervert it. And in the perversion of the thing, we lead them astray and lead them to walk apart from, separate from God. We are so good at this. One of the things that I think he talks about that would be applicable for us is to think about our, our job. And so you say, well, I've got to have a job. I've got to provide for my family. Matt, I memorized Colossians 3.23 a long time ago. Whatever you do and all these things, exert yourself, right? And so look what he says there in Colossians 3. Look what he says in Colossians 3. Give yourself over to these things to exalt yourself. Hmm. Whatever you do, work heartily. Ask for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do, work for the Lord heartily and not for men. And so we begin to see that this is the way we work in our job. And so where everybody else is doing 30 and 40 hours, we're doing 50 and 60 hours, and we're giving ourselves, and we have this verse tattooed on our inner arm right here, right? So every time we're tempted to lean over and smell pit sweat, we look at it and we say, work heartily as unto the Lord. Well, this is me. Raise your hand if you're sure, right? But we begin to kind of pervert this, and, and what we find over the course of our lives is that we are giving ourselves so readily to our jobs. We've got no room for pursuit of God. But this is what we do. We baptize this in Scripture. So anytime somebody comes to you and they say, friend, I recognize that you work an unbelievable amount. I recognize that you give so many hours to work. Have you begun to think that you're neglecting your family? Have you begun to think that you're neglecting your relationship with God? You say, God has set me as a provider. God has set me in these ways. He has given me the strength and the energy to do these things. And oh, by the way, have you read my tat? Work heartily as unto the Lord. When we find ourselves doing that, we've taken something good that God has given us. Work. You should work. You should work hard. When you're seeking to hire somebody, you should be able to go to any Christian and say, would you come and work with me? Because I found that Christians have amazing work ethics. An amazing work ethic. This is largely not true, but this should be kind of what we find, right? We tend to find that our, our job tends to become kind of this paramount tends to become this ultimate thing that we pursue and it's what we're known for and, and we get accolades for it and people are so excited about how many hours we're able to do this thing. And this is hard for us to hear. This is hard for us to hear. We're not advocating laziness. Nobody's saying that. But there is so much more to pursuing and glorifying God than your job, amen? God has made you to work, but he has not made work to be all that you do in life. So job, that's a difficult thing for us to hear. Family, family's a difficult thing for us to hear, but I'm getting lots of really angry looks, and so let's come back to that. 
Let's talk about health for a second. Let's talk about health for a second. Where are people in a culture so incredibly captivated with looking at health, kind of, what do I look like? My physique and, and pills and, and, and just trying to get trim, trying to get fit, and just trying to, trying to live longer for all these things. And you should take care of yourself. You should take care of your body. Your body is a temple. God dwells inside you. You shouldn't give yourself over to eating. You should not be one who, who pursues gluttony, right? Who just eats and eats and eats. Your God is your stomach. But so too, your body shouldn't be your God. For many of us, if we're able to look at kind of the way we're spending time, how much time we're spending in the gym, how much time we're spending on supplements, how much time we're spending thinking about spending time in the gym and on supplements, right? This is a lot of us. I've really just been doing a lot of bargain shopping on gyms. I hadn't quite found the one that will pay me to work out, but when I get that, I'm there. My muscles grow when I think about that. That's weird. 1 Timothy 4, 8, this is what a lot of us do. We take this passage and then we just kind of take it right out of its context and we destroy it. Paul writes, he says, for one bodily training is of, everybody say, some value. Paul doesn't get in there and say, what's the best superlative I can use to exalt how great physical fitness is? In fact, he gets in there and some translations say, you know, it's of a lesser value or it's not of significant value. He writes, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds now the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So as Christians, we find ourselves not primarily being those who give ourselves to having the biggest muscles and the trimmest waist, right? As Christians, we give ourselves to being those who are the most godly. Godliness is of advantage and is great in every way. So there's the job, there's health, we tend to set our mind on and, and focus on and kind of invert this pursuit of what it is to pursue God. Let's just talk about family for a second. I'm just going to look down. In Deuteronomy 6, there's this great statement on family. You can see it here. You can see it in Ephesians 6.4. Moses writing says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. He is Echad. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I teach you shall be on your hearts. He describes interiorly kind of where we are before God. This should be us. Every fiber of our being should be leaning forward, desires to know God more and to make him known, right? And so he's growing in our own lives and we seek to see him grow in the lives of everyone we encounter. Look at verse seven. That's right. In verse seven, you shall teach them dil dil diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in the home, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. And so we see and we take our understanding of how family discipleship works and we say, I need to be the primary one engaging and discipling my kids. Absolutely. Right, absolutely. If you bring your kids here for us to be the primary ones discipling them, then you're asking us to engage in something that's not right. God has given your kids to you, parents, some of you grandparents. God has given your kids to you. He has placed them in your charge for your investment. And we want to come alongside you and help you in this. But this is the difficulty. We see this, and then we begin to shape everything in our lives around our family and our kids. Everything in our lives around our family and our kids and creating special experiences for them. So that what our kids see 
Listen to this. Our kids see this and recognize that God is not the most important thing for us in our lives. They are. They're sick, we stay home from work. They're sick, we stay home from church. They have sports programs that start at 2 in the morning and run until, right? Everything in our lives, our finances, mom takes an extra job to pay for these things. Everything in our lives revolve around these little bloodsuckers, right? This is what we're teaching them. You're absolutely the most important thing in the world. You're absolutely the most important thing in the world. And everything mom and dad do ultimately runs through the lens of how are they going to feel about this? How are they going to respond to this? We've taken a godly idea, growing our kids and discipling them, and made it an ultimate plan and purpose. Parents, your kids need to hear you say no. They need to hear you say we don't have the money for that. They need to hear you say your mom is more important than you are to me. They need to hear you say we're going to make sacrifices to do this as a family. And your kids need to learn to make sacrifices. If you raise your kids with the understanding that they are the most important person to you, you're setting them up for failure. Because their spouse will not think that they're the most important person in the world. They will think that they are the most important person in the world. Do you understand? When we raise disciples of Jesus, and your kids will follow you in your passionate pursuit of Jesus, but they likely will not go where mom and dad aren't willing to go. So we don't want to be those who are just dropping our kids off at Awanas. We want to be those who are staying and engaged and teaching and training. We don't want to be those who outsource discipleship. We want to be those who our conversations around the table and our conversation on trips kind of revolve around and center on who Jesus is and what he's doing in our lives. We want our kids to be conversant in the language of Jesus. We are the Jesus people. We want our kids to be the same. Amen? Coming from this idea of family and kind of our, our tendency towards that, we recognize, too, that there is a tendency for us to become very, very religious. Very, very religious. Coming out of this discussion, out of verse 7, you get into verse 8, and he says, You shall bind them on your, on your sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In all ways, we keep God before us and so that we're pursuing him in all these things. And this is good and this is righteous. But we tend to be these people who excel more at, if, if I just know like a thing to do. So if you just give me a list of what I need to do and, and to not do, if you just help me in this pursuit, I really think I'd be closer to God. In essence, what you're asking me to do is to have a relationship with God, or you want to have a relationship with God by proxy. You want me to give you all the steps and the things to do and the things to say, and you think this is what's going to result in just a a bold and vibrant faith. Can I tell you that your relationship with Jesus is just that? It is a relationship with Jesus. Religion seeks to set up structures to kind of keep you in this framework of religion. But a relationship has this wonderful ebb and flow, and you're able to experience the wonderful grace of God in failure and disappointment when you find yourself being more readily engaged in a relationship than a religious structure. These are the temptations that, as I think about it, man, I see these in my own life. 
I see these in the lives of the people I counsel. I see these in your social media posts. My heart breaks for me. My heart breaks for you. My heart breaks for our kids who are being raised in this schizophrenic understanding of what it looks like to be a Christian. We have temptations that are just not the obvious ones. The enemy wins with us with taking something that we're selflessly doing and then perverting it and helping us to find pride, helping us to find things outside of our love for God. And each and every time we find ourselves doing this, we receive this testimony again out of verse 16. It is not from the Father, it is from the world. Cannot look at your life. Your wife cannot look at your life. Your friends cannot look at your life and definitively say if you are passionately pursuing Jesus or something along the way. What most of us need to do in this is get broken and humble before God and say, I was pursuing you, you led me down this path, but now have I begun to pursue this path over pursuing you? I think 90% of us are gonna find this to be true over the course of our lives. But what we do in the midst of this has tremendous impact. And what God calls most of us to do is this course correction in inviting brothers and sisters into our lives and say, would you keep me humble? Would you keep me in check? Would you make sure my job isn't becoming the ultimate thing? Would you make sure that my health isn't becoming the ultimate thing? Like I wanna live to be a ripe old age, but I don't wanna be setting records, right? I don't want to be the the 105-year-old setting the 100-meter dash record. I just want to be healthy. I don't want my health to get in the way of me pursuing God. Aha. That's the corrective. I don't want my academic, I don't want my professional, I don't want my relational, and I don't want my religious pursuits to get in the way of me pursuing Jesus and having an impact on all those around me. And that corrective, that corrective finds us loving God and not the things of the world. So John has given us this command. He said, don't love the world or the things in the world. First reason is because there are temptations that come along and these things aren't of God, they're of the world. And the second reason he gives us is why not love the world or the things of the world? He says, because they're passing away along with their desires. They're passing away along with their desires. This is difficult for us. I can think of just a couple examples. Say I take my four-year-old into a candy store. And in the middle of the candy store, there is a salad bar, right? Salad bar, got some nice lean cuts of chicken. I got all these things. But flanking the store on every side is every form of sugary confection known to man. Now bring him in there. Say, whatever you can fit on your plate, you can have. And he says, what about my pockets? And I was like, okay. Whatever you can fit on your plate, whatever you can fit in your pockets, whatever you can put in your hands, whatever you can put in your mouth, whatever you can do this number with, you can have. What's he going to do? Is he going to enter the room and say, what is of the most enduring value for me? Surely it's not this sugary goodness before me. Is that what he's going to do? He's four, right? That's that's pretty verbose for a four-year-old. No, he's not even going to think through it. I'm going to say, you can go in there, buddy, and whatever you want, you can have. He's going to look and say, well, that's really weird. And he's going to go, and he's like, oh, look, gummy worms. Oh, look, this. Oh, blah. Because he just keeps eating, right? And so... He's going to find himself eating to the point, gorging himself so much that that he finds himself pretty soon developing this diet of nothing but sugary goodness, right? This is kind of what we end up doing. We look at the temporary around us and say, it is immediate. I want this stuff. I want this right now. 
We look at the eternal and say that's far off, and, and man, I'll get around to that in a little bit. I have all of eternity, after all, to th- consider it, to think about it. We have something working against us in our perspective of eternality. And that is, this, it's, it's similar to the same thing we have with kind of renting and buying, right? When you find yourself in a renting engagement, you're renting a home, you're renting an apartment, and there's a wall that bothers you, what do you do? You, you put a picture on it, you say, man, that's the stupidest place to put a wall. When Valerie and I uh, were in Prague, our first apartment there was just straight up goofy. It, it basically, it was a big donut, and in the middle, there was the toilet that was an individual room, there was a shower that was an individual room, and then there was a wall between. Now, in between the shower, you had that wall, and then on the other side, you had a galley kitchen where you could just kind of walk back and forth. Well, for whatever reason, uh, ostensibly the person was a pervert, whatever reason, right over the kitchen sink were see-through glass blocks. That on the other side of the see-through glass box was this region, right, in the shower. And so when we came into that apartment, it was just the two of us, so not a big deal. But I recognized my mother-in-law's coming to stay, very big deal. Right? We had friends coming to stay, very big deal. And so now we recognize we've got to make some transformations to this place. But I didn't call somebody and say, I need you to knock out these glass blocks. I need you to, 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 to reconstruct the wall. I need to fundamentally change and alter this thing. No, what did we do? We got some suction cups and we prayed to God that they would hold. And we put a little curtain there to keep us from seeing what we didn't want, didn't ever want to see. Right? And so we recognized that we were in this temporary engagement now at the end of the time overseas we came back and we bought a jalopy of a home we bought a home that had been foreclosed and and uh, apparently when the home was went into foreclosure the mom left when the home was still in great shape but the kids stayed holy did they stay and so they went in they ripped toilets out of the ground they pulled uh light fixtures out of the ceiling and just they they took all the the flooring out of one of the rooms apparently it had some lasting enduring uh uh, feeling towards them i don't know and so this house was ruined but as we came into this house we recognized this is our home this is where we are so we begin to make plans i pulled over 2,000 square feet of tile out of the house we had it retiled or i should say my father-in-law retiled it you know still talks about that and so we we poured time money and energy into fixing this place up why because it was our home but the more effort we expended the more energy we poured into this thing we recognized our time living in Fort Worth was short. We weren't going to stay there forever. But all the decisions we made were in line with making permanent decisions. Making decisions that were an indication that all of our friends and everybody that we encountered, that we're sticking around for a very long time. Either that or we're very, very foolish. There's some combination of the two. Each day you spend on planet Earth, there's the temptation to recognize Everything around you is permanent and fixed. Permanent and fixed. Peter, writing to those sojourning in the land, said, you are aliens and sojourners. Everything you touch, everything you look at is passing away and is temporary. Everything. Every relationship you have, every picture you hang on the walls of your church, listen to me on this. Every change we make in this church, everything we're doing here is temporary. Everything we're doing here is temporary. 
when we begin to worship and enjoy this temporal, temporary experience more than we do God, this is leading us not to love him, not to worship him, but to worship where he has us. So John's word in this, as he comes to in verse 17, he says, this world is passing away along with our desires. But look what he asks. He asks us, are we living out the will of God? And if the answer to that is yes, John writes and says that whoever does the will of God abides forever. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. In 1 John 2, 6, when Justin was teaching a few weeks ago, it says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. If we are the Jesus people, then we walk the way Jesus walked. If we are the Jesus people in line with John 10, verses 27 and 28, we are those who hear his voice. He writes, Jesus speaks and says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them, they follow me. I've given them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus speaks, you hear, you respond. This is what he calls us to do. We are to be in the world. We are to be graciously extending his love to every man, woman, and child that we encounter, living our lives as a humble response to his grace provoking humility in us. But we're not called to make this our forever home. We're not called to make this for our forever home. And it is our daily renewed dependence upon Jesus that helps us to overcome temptation and helps us to see this world for the passing, temporary thing it is. Let me pray for us. Father Jesus, we thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you for your challenging word. We are infinitely good at deceiving, lying to ourselves, and believing that all we're really doing is engaged in satisfying self. But that's really not that big of a deal. Ultimately, we love you and we submit ourselves to you, so it's not a big deal. God, would you bring your truth to reside, to remain in our hearts? Would you help us to find our eternal, everlasting worth in your Son, in the person of Jesus? Would you, God, help us not to love the world and the things of the world? It's a temptation to love something other than you. It's a temptation to put our hope and trust on something that's passing. Help us to find ourselves instead in the permanence of being found with Jesus Christ. We pray these, son, these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen.